is a great morning to be able to come together and witness a baptism. Uh, it's just such an encouragement. My, my prayer is always that for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, it would encourage you in your faith. And just that question, am I truly trusting in Jesus Christ? Am I really believing in him? And it's a reminder for us, for those who aren't followers of Jesus Christ, to say, what is that? What What's that guy doing? What What's with the water? What's this all about? And hopefully to ask some really, really good questions. And so it was such an honor this morning to be able to participate in that, and I hope for you to be able to watch that. Also, I do want to say, if you're interested in baptism, we actually have another one scheduled coming up in February. And if you would like to be baptized, we don't have to do a bunch together, but it's kind of neat to get to uh, to have a group on one Sunday morning. I would love to talk with you more about it. Um, we, we like to meet with people in advance and make sure they understand the gospel and they understand what baptism is. So if you would like to be baptized in February or other times, uh, go ahead and let me know and we can get together and talk about it. But you know, a crucial question in the baptism is that question, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and are you trusting in him alone for your salvation? And at the heart of that is this question, who is Jesus? Why does it make sense to trust in Jesus for salvation? Why does it make sense especially to trust in Jesus alone for salvation? If you're joining us for a first time here this morning, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Focal Point. It's a sermon series on the entirety of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And, and the point of the title, focal point, is that Jesus is the focal point of Scripture. He is the lens at w- or through which we must look at all of the Old Testament. He's the lens through which we must understand all of the New Testament as well. He is the focal point of Scripture. Two weeks ago was Christmas morning. It was on a Sunday. And, and as Lord would have it, we were able to, in this sermon series, get right up to the birth of Jesus Christ. So on Sunday morning, I continued on Christmas with this sermon series, and we looked at the birth of Jesus Christ. And we looked specifically in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy, probably one that everybody has memorized in, in Awana and, and things. Uh, genealogy is a long list of names, and I say that jokingly because usually when we get to the long list of names, we kind of gloss over them. And skip them. But we looked at why it was important that Jesus was a child or a descendant of Abraham. And, and all the promises God had made to Abraham and his offspring, the Israelites in the Old Testament, and how they are fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ. We looked at how he had to be the descendant of King David. And how he was qualified, he alone is qualified to be the king over all creation. And how he fulfills the promises that God made to David. But it's always my prayer after Christmas morning, after we talk about a baby born in a manger and the shepherds and the angels and wise men who came later, we talk about that, I always hope that people have some lingering questions. What was this really all about? It's almost one of those times that it's so familiar, we skip it. And so today I want to go back to that manger and ask that question, who is Jesus? 
In fact, we're going to be looking at this over the next couple weeks. Next week, I want to look at specifically the teachings of Jesus. What did he talk about in his life here on earth? Then we're going to look at the crucifixion and resurrection and why that's important, why it comes from who Jesus is and helps us to understand who he is and is the only way to be saved. And it's really difficult to break these into separate sermons. Um, so I, I hope through each one we can talk about how they're tied together, but I hope it will help us to better answer this question, who is Jesus? So we have entered into the New Testament now, that kind of second part of Scripture that begins with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are called the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of Mark, and so on. And the word gospel simply means good news. It's what the word means, good news. I like to say I I think we should translate it great news because it it just doesn't seem strong enough. But it means good news. And so Matthew is saying, what do I want people to know about Jesus? He was there with Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was one of his apostles. And so he's writing a book saying, this is who Jesus is. This is what I witnessed. This is the good news, the great news about Jesus. And it's interesting, we have four Gospels. Matthew and Luke begin kind of where we're used to, with the Christmas story. And they talk about Jesus being born to Mary, placed in a manger. They do it in different ways, but they, they give us the Christmas story. Mark, I love to call Mark kind of the ADD Gospel. Mark doesn't have time for that. He's, he's got to get to the good stuff right away. He skips right to his public ministry, just wants to get right into his teachings and miracles. Mark's a very short book. If you, if you don't have a good attention span, that's the gospel for you. Everything suddenly, you get to a passage in Mark, suddenly he did this, suddenly he did this. It's like the infomercial of Christian gospels. <laughs> suddenly. John's gospel is so different. There's a lot of reasons for that. I think a big reason for that is that John wrote much later. He knew Matthew's gospel, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel. They were already out there. He he, he didn't have to rewrite that stuff. I think he kind of thought, man, they did a good job. What do I have to add? His gospel reads very different. Not contradictory. Doesn't conflict with what Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote. It adds to it. And the interesting thing I find is that how John starts his gospel is, in a way, the Christmas story, but it has nothing to do with mangers or angels or shepherds. John wants to start by answering this question for us. Who is Jesus? Because you can know about a baby born in a manger. You can know about angels coming and speaking to shepherds, but if you don't understand who that baby is, you've missed the point. And so that's what I want to look at today. So if you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the chairs in front of you somewhere. You can feel free to grab one of those. And if you really don't have a Bible at all in your home, feel free to steal ours. I give you permission. My only condition is that you read it, and I challenge you to start with the book of John. Read it. Put it to good use. We'll get more. And the first thing that John wants us to know about Jesus is that this baby born in that manger has something very special about him. This is no mere child. This is no mere man, no mere human. And have you ever wished that God would, would just show up and answer some questions? Do you ever wish that he would 
appear to you and say, look, this is who I am. And you could say, hey, why do you do this? Have you ever wished that God would show up and explain to us why this world is just such a mess? Why life is so hard? In many ways, John is answering that and saying he did. He did show up and he did answer a lot of questions. And before we look at John, we need to go back and look at Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Every good Jewish boy and girl would have known this by heart from memory. And I hope it's familiar to us as well. This is the first sentence of the English Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in Genesis, we have this picture that before there's any stuff, anything that was created, there is a God. God has no beginning. Nobody created him. He is the creator of all things. He exists before all creation and everything comes from him. Another fundamental Old Testament teaching that comes right out of this is that there is only one God. The Shema in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was a fundamental statement of the Israelite religion in the Old Testament. There is only one God. And then because there's only one God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And a huge problem in the Old Testament is that they were accepting that there might have been other gods, other goddesses, and they were running after them. And God kept calling them back, I am one. So before anything is created, we have one God, and there is nothing else. And then God speaks. God speaks And the world comes into existence. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God says, let there be light. And there was light. So we have God who speaks. He makes an expression of who he is. And by expressing who he is and his plan and purpose for the world, the world pops into existence. And John's going to take those words, and I wanted to show you them first, because the way John begins his gospel ties into those things. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, and and all the Jewish boys and girls would have been like, "Oh, oh, teacher, I know this one. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What? But, but, But John... There's only one God, and and he was the creator, and there was nothing else in the beginning. And John's going, yes, that's right. John is not contradicting Genesis. He is interpreting it. And he says, yes, there is one God at the beginning. And at the very beginning, that God expressed who he was, and then all things were created through that expression of who he is. And John ties this into the question, who is Jesus? And he's answering it by saying, Jesus is the word. He is the perfect expression of who God is. And through Jesus, all things are created. He was God. He's not some other God. He's not somebody in addition to God. He's not something that God created. I want to be careful. When you talk about the Trinity, you always have to like, Clarify some things. Put a bunch of footnotes in. I'm not saying Jesus came into existence in Genesis chapter 1. He was always in existence. 
He is the perfect expression of who God is. And John says some really important things about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Man, so many times I hear people say, well, pastor, Bible doesn't actually say that Jesus is God. Christians put that on them. That, that doesn't actually say it. It says it right there. Because later on, we're going to see this word that he's talking about. This is Jesus. The Bible absolutely claims unequivocally that Jesus is God. That was not added later. It was not made up. We couldn't have made that up. In fact, the church couldn't have made it up. It is absolute blasphemy. And every time it's spoken, people tried to stone the person that were saying it because they understood that's what was being said. John says, if we are going to understand who Jesus is, we must understand he is God. And then down in verse 14, he says this, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. It's like John saying, just in case you missed this, I'm talking about Jesus. He's the one that became flesh. He's the one. John was there, like Matthew. He was there among the disciples. He saw Jesus. He hung out with them. He broke bread and ate together. He saw Jesus. He listened to what he said. And even knowing Jesus personally and being with Jesus, just as we are here, he still could say, I know he is God. That's amazing. Jesus is the perfect expression of who God is because he is God. The whole Bible is God's communication to us. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable or useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. comes right out of 2 Timothy. All scripture is important, but if you want to be able to see and touch and listen to God in the flesh, you look to Jesus Christ. And it's interesting because throughout his life, he interacted with people. And they asked questions just like we would have questions. Maybe they didn't always ask the questions you want answers to, but we get to see how Jesus interacted with them, how he treats them. We get to see a meeting with a, a man named Nicodemus, a scholar, a religious elite, and we see how, how Jesus was able to talk to him and show love and grace, but also teach and preach truth to him. We see how he talked with a Samaritan, a foreign woman in John chapter 4, and how he was gracious to her. We see how he deals with Mary and Martha at the funeral of their brother, and how he loved them, but he pointed to his resurrection as ultimate truth. We see how he washes his disciples' feet in John 13, how he prays for his disciples and all of us in John 17. I love on the cross of Jesus Christ, as he is in agony dying, he looks down and he sees Mary, his earthly mother, and he makes sure that she is taken care of by looking at another disciple, John, and says, here you go, you guys take care of each other. This is God caring for people. And we get to see God in the flesh and how he loved people. I love how he deals with Thomas the doubter. Man, I run into a lot of doubters in ministry. And I got to tell you, I'm often one of them. Oh, come on, God. You can't really mean that study scripture and I read and I go, man, you really do mean that. 
And I see Thomas, and sometimes I wonder, like, God, you must think I'm the worst follower. And I go to Thomas, and I go, wow, if he can love Thomas, who just outright doubted him, he loves doubters. And he shows grace and mercy to us. And ultimately, we see his love portrayed on the cross and his victory over sin and death through the resurrection. People struggle with this because they, they, they say, well, how can you say that Jesus is God if there's only one God? And sometimes jokingly, I, I use the, the well, it's not really an analogy, it's more of a joke, but one plus one plus one equals one. It's great theology about the Trinity, it's horrible math. So I was reading this week and D.A. Carson has a much better expression of this. So I'm going to quit saying that because I don't like it. D.A. Carson shows something that is perfect math. What is infinity? See, infinity is every number without end. What happens when you add infinity to infinity? You don't get two times infinity because there's no such thing. You get infinity. And if you add another infinity, you still get infinity. And if you divide infinity three ways, do you know what you get? Infinity. Trinity. The infinite God. Also the infinite Son, Jesus Christ, and the infinite Holy Spirit, all infinitely and perfectly God. So the first answer to the question, who is Jesus, that we must accept, is that Jesus is God. And when Jesus, who is God, speaks and acts, things happen. The next thing that John leads us to is this idea that Jesus is the light of the world. And again, he's going right back into the roots in Genesis chapter 1. Throughout the first chapter of Genesis, when God creates, there are recurring themes. And in the first part, there's this recurring theme of light. In fact, it's the first thing that's created. And then in the latter part of the passage, when all things are the world and the universe has been created, there comes this filling and he puts living things in there. There's life. And in the Jewish mindset, these things, and and I think in the ancient mindset in general, these things were just so linked together. Light and life. You had to have light in order to have life. If there was darkness, the crops died. You had to have light and life together. And John's tying into these things in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, In him, in this word, who is Jesus, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God is the author and source of all light and all life. And here John's saying, because Jesus is God, he is the source of, and therefore can be the only true giver of, ultimate life. And John links all these ideas together as the source of life, the light that brings light into the world, and he points them all to Jesus Christ. But there is a problem. I think it's a problem we all feel from time to time. And you see it in the latter part of the last verse right there. The light shines in the darkness. Things were not great in the world of Jesus. In the time that he was born in the world, it, you know, we talk about the good old days. I'm getting older. Turning 48 this year. Jeez. 
I know some of you say you're just a baby. That stops ringing true around 50, okay? Come on. But I will tell you one of the things I've learned. There is no such thing as the good old days. Oh, in hindsight, we look back with great editorial prowess. And with our pen, we strike out all the things we don't want to remember. But in that moment, we're going, God, what are you doing? The world has struggled with darkness for a long time. And Jesus is the light of the world. He comes in, and I love what John says, and the darkness has not overcome it. Or another translation is, has not understood it. There's this incompatibility between the darkness and the sinfulness of this world, the confusion of this world, and the light of Jesus Christ. We see this at home. We we like to watch movies, or we're in our basement. We have a projector, so we keep the lights way down low, right? Movie ends, football game's over, whatever. And, and somebody turns on the lights and you know, the whole family, we don't go, oh, thank you for turning on the lights. We go, oh, come on. <laughs> it hurts. It's bright. Down in John chapter one, verses nine through 11, he continues this idea. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. The the world didn't get it. They didn't want to accept it. It's like people, when the light comes on and they go, oh, please turn it back dimmer. I can't take it. We don't like to hear truth so often. Light and darkness are complete opposites. And it's a beautiful picture of the light coming into the world, but we need to check our own hearts and ask, how often are we the ones that want to shade our eyes and say, please turn it off. I don't want it. We don't like what the light points out in our lives or in our world. This world is living in darkness. Doesn't accept who Jesus is, doesn't want to hear about him. Or or so, so often we just kind of reinterpret and we redefine to make the light a little less bright for us. And we say, oh, well, you know, Jesus, yeah, I believe in him. He's there to make me happy. I love Jesus. I gotta tell you as a Christian, often I am so happy in Jesus, absolutely. There are other times following Jesus is hard. There's hope, yes. There's ultimate joy, absolutely. But in that moment, if you asked me, am I happy? I'd be like, not really. It's hard. Sometimes we say, well, Jesus is just a a good teacher, and so I listen to him because he's a really good teacher. And then we say, oh, and this other author, he's a really good teacher too. Well, they say opposite things. I know, but it's both good. And we just want a good teacher. Sometimes we say, well, he's just a made-up story, a fairy tale that we tell our children to keep them in line. But see, all of these are ways that the darkness tries to diminish and shut out the light. We need to come to scripture and read about who Jesus really is and allow that light to shine through us. One of the things we talk about often on Christmas morning is this phrase, Jesus is God with us. This is the word Matthew uses, comes from the Old Testament, Emmanuel. He probably sung Christmas songs with the word Emmanuel in it. The word Emmanuel, it's a name, it means God with us. 
And John picks up on this idea that here we have Jesus who is God, Jesus who is the light of the world. But John wants us to understand one more really important truth about Jesus Christ. And he's tying it right into the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, you don't have God just sitting up in heaven every once in a while lobbing a few messages at his people, telling them to shape up, do a better job. You don't have a distant God even in the Old Testament. What you have is a God who is right there with his people. In fact, one of the first things he commands them when he gives them his law, as he saves them out of Egypt, he says, build this special tent, this tabernacle. And I'm going to dwell among you right there in the tabernacle. And, and in this tabernacle, in this tent, there was this innermost room, the Holy of Holies, and it had a separation from the outer room, and that had a separation from the courtyard, and that had a separation from the people. And they knew God was right there, but they also knew all the time, but there is this, there's this barrier all the time. And then John comes, and he says this about Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And that word there in the Greek, it's he tabernacled among us. He made his dwelling among us. And then he says this, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And here there's something huge that's so different than the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, if you saw the glory of God, you would die. Sinners cannot come into the presence of the all holy God and look fully upon his glory. And then John looks at Jesus and he says, we've seen the glory of God. Why? Because something powerful happens when Jesus comes. He comes not only to communicate and display who God is, he comes to save us from our sins. And that's what makes the difference. There's a lot of old paintings, Renaissance paintings, and they They'll paint Jesus either as a baby or as an adult. And what does he have around his head? It's a halo. John never mentions a halo. Matthew, Mark, Luke, no halos. Nobody looked at Jesus and was like, the glory of God, he looks so different and so amazing. That's not what John's talking about. He wasn't this stunning example of humanity. He was just a guy. He looked like a normal guy. So how then, how did he display the glory of God? Well, John goes on in his gospel and he talks about how Jesus treats people. Talks about what he taught. He talks about miracles, the things that only God would have authority over that Jesus did. And then there's something really important that John points to that shows us how Jesus displays the glory of God. In John chapter 17, the night before he's crucified, Jesus is getting together with his disciples and sharing a meal. And he prays. And at the beginning of that prayer, he says this, Father, the hour has come. He's talking about the crucifixion. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows it. That's the hour he's talking about. The hour has come. And he says, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
I brought you glory on the earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying now is the time, the hour. Jesus is saying, I know I'm going to the cross. And he's saying in that moment, Father, I'm going to glorify you. The greatest expression and demonstration of God's glory throughout all of Scripture is when Jesus, God with us, who is the light of the world and truly God, willingly went to the cross to die in our place. And nobody looked at it and said, oh, that's so beautiful, so sweet. They looked at it and said, how awful. And we need to remember the cross and look at it and consider it and think, as the songs say, it was my sin that held him there. When we look at the cross, we should say, that deserves to be me. That's my place. And Jesus went there in my place to take my sin and my suffering and my death. And he died in my place. My God died in my place. This is Jesus. This is the glory of God on display. And then he rose from the dead conquering sin and death, promising eternal life to everyone who believed. This is Jesus. This is what God wanted us to see and know and what did he, what he wanted to accomplish for us. As I said in the baptism, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. God had to do it for us. And he has. He goes on in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, as many as did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. That's the gospel. That's the good news part of it. In this dark world with all of our questions and all of our confusions and our frustrations and our doubts and our sorrow and our pain and our hopelessness and our helplessness, Jesus died in our place so that we could be adopted into God's holy family. We sang a song earlier at the beginning of the service. Maybe the song wasn't familiar to you, but the scripture should have been. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Do you know what book of the Bible that comes from? John 3.60. That's where John's leading from chapter 1 up to chapter 3. That Jesus, who is God with us, he is the one who died to save us, that we might have eternal life. Friends, it's not enough to academically answer this question. It's not enough to say, well, I was taught as a child. I I went through school or I went through confirmation. I went to a Christian school and I know who Jesus is. It's not enough to be able to just say it and tick the boxes and say, I know who Jesus is. Because knowing who Jesus is changes everything. It has to, or we don't really know who Jesus is. John chapter 1, verse 39. Jesus is beginning his public ministry, and he sees two guys. 
And they have some questions. Specifically, they're like, hey, where are you staying? And I love Jesus. Here's the son of God. Like the greatest theologian ever is Jesus, right? I think we can all admit that. He could have sat down and said, no, let's talk about this. What do you guys know about me? Are we on the same page theologically? No, he looks at these two guys and what does he say? Come. Hey, guys, come. Come with me. A little later on, he's dealing with this guy named Philip. And he simply looks at Philip and he says, come on, follow me. See, when you know who Jesus is, you have to follow. And the truth is, if you want to know who Jesus is, you have to follow. So many people want to sit on the sidelines and say, oh, preacher, I've got questions about Jesus and I can't accept this until I get all of these things answered. Put your questions in a suitcase and follow Jesus. If you're going to get an answer to your questions, it's going to be as you follow Jesus. The call of faith is such a crucial part of being a Christian. I don't know everything about him or where he's going, but I will trust and I will follow. We must learn about who Jesus is. But then we must also trust him and follow him. He is God. He is the light of the world. He is God with us, our Savior. But when you know all those things, trust him as your Savior and follow him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us, and I praise you for Dominic's baptism this morning. And I pray for him today, Father. He has publicly proclaimed his belief in you as his Savior and his Lord. And God, I pray for each one of us as we think about that and we think about this question, who is Jesus? First and foremost, help us to not just come up with our own answers to that but to allow you to answer the question, who you are, who Jesus is as your eternal son. So I thank you for John and how he lays this out to make sure we don't miss these important truths. But God, my prayer this morning is not just to educate people. It is to point them to your son, Jesus Christ, that they might trust in him as their savior and follow him. And God, I know there are some in this room that are struggling with that. And the steps have grown tough and they are weary. Jesus is still God and he is still the light of the world. And I pray that you would encourage them along the way. And for those that are stuck and struggling in darkness, and they don't want that light switch to be turned on. I pray in your grace and in your mercy, you would reach out to them and help them to know who you are. And the truth that you sent your son to die in their place. And may their eyes begin to be open to the light of your life that you offer through your son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.